Hello everyone, my name is Adrian Mendoza, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Scott Geller, a professor in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Tech and the director of the Center for Applied Behavior Systems there as well. Dr. Geller has extensive background in both behavioral sciences and cognitive psychology. So in today's discussion, we'll be talking about how we can maybe bring these distinct fields of psychology together to do some good for the world in major fields of people's lives, such as the workplace or education settings. With that said, let's get right into it. Well, Scott, thanks for taking the time to to come and talk. Uh, so I was stumbling through JOBM and I found that article of yours published in 2005, connecting positive psychology and OBM. And I thought it was so interesting because back in my undergrad time, I took a class on positive psychology. And at the same time of taking that, I was taking OBM. And it was really cool to essentially have those conversations with each of those professors um and think try and think of ways that I can kind of combine the two myself because I was really inspired by both of them so I guess my question to you to kind of start this off is how how can we connect positive psychology and OBM I mean and that's a great question and a big question related to what you just said I teach a course called positive psychology and when we were all virtual, Marty Seligman visited our class for an hour and a half and talked to us about, about his book. As you know, Marty Seligman started Positive Psychology back in 2000. And it's very interesting that he is totally anti-behaviorism. He is totally negative on behaviorism, claiming that positive psychology is about cognition. It's about thinking. It's about anticipation. And of course, so the, where I'm coming from is I want to bring them together. I want to use behavioral science to increase the behaviors that improve positivity. Simple oh. thing like gratitude, saying thank you to someone when they do something. When, when, when someone says, when I say thank you to someone for doing me a favor, you know what they say? No problem. That's a common response. No problem. It was nothing. No, right. it was something. And I'm thanking you for it. And, and I want you to pass it on. I want us to be more grateful. Of course, that's positive psychology, is being more grateful for the things that people do for us. It connects directly to positive reinforcement. So what I'm saying, in addition to supportive feedback, we can add some gratitude that's how we bring it together but again i need to get back and say marty selling was totally against behavioral psychology and i must say that behavioral psychologists are typically against cognition all right don't talk to me about people thinking our work is to focus on behavior and again we need to bring it together folks we need to bring those two areas together well, it's really funny because you think about um, B.F. Skinner, right? And you think about everything that he talked about. When you read about behaviorism, he totally acknowledges the fact that thinking is behavior. It's just more behavior that needs to be explained. And Over behavior. Absolutely. And he's not, you know, he also addresses the fact that people have feelings. They have emotions. They're simply just byproducts of the behavior, but they're not necessarily causes of it. And I think that's where that kind of bridge comes together in a sense of where you have yeah. OBM working with people and the things that they're doing, 
And then the positive psychology, they're focusing on those byproducts that kind of make people happy. I mean, in the, in the most general sense. You know, and back to gratitude again, when you say thank you to someone, two people benefit. The person who says thank you feels good about it and the person who receives it. So example, we, uh, we this is bringing them together. We did research recently. We're still, this is ongoing research where we simply are measuring how many pedestrians who cross the road, a marked, a marked crossway, simply turn and thank the driver who's waiting for them, who stopped for them. Who stopped at the crosswalk. Yeah, at the crosswalk. Yeah. It's, it's less than 10%. 7% on our university campus actually give a wave of thanks. Now, what if we put up a sign, a simple prompt? Give a wave of thank, thank the driver with a wave. We doubled the, the number of people saying thank you. So there's a simple combination of using a simple technique to increase the expression of gratitude. Well, it's great because that's just a simple antecedent intervention. But as we know, behaviors, it sustains or it maintains because of the consequences, right? But that's socially mediated reinforcement of, oh, thank you for you know stopping for me the person in the car is more likely to be like you're welcome and like you know no, the whole no problem but the point being is probably hopefully next time when they do it even if there isn't that sign they're still going to do it absolutely and i and my students of course do it big time you know it's right. it's, it's expressing gratitude and the research says that that helps now I sent you a paper related to this. What about that slogan everybody is saying these days? If you see something, say something. Right. What does that mean to the average person? If you see something, say something. Well, it always has that negative context, right? It's it's always about if you're in essentially like an airport and you see something that's out of the ordinary and suspicious yeah. and it's kind of has this connotation that it's associated with something that's like dangerous and whatnot. There you go. Look for bad things and then, and then say something, report them and expect a negative consequence. We don't see it that way. Do we as, as behavioral scientists, we, if you see something positive, if you see something desirable, say something. What if we, oh, now this is bringing positive psychology right into behavioral science. What if we paid more attention to the things that are desirable, the right things that are going? What if we, and, what, and, and then we thank them and then we acknowledge that. What if we had a world that was more focused on the positive things in life and, and acknowledging that? I think that could change our culture. I think that could improve improve our culture dramatically if we just did it. But we all know we the negative things stand out. We're not looking for positive things. We're looking for negative things. And by the way, we know this too, don't we? The best way to eliminate an undesirable behavior is to pay attention to a desirable behavior that's incompatible with the undesirable behavior, with DRO. Differential reinforcement of other behavior. Right. Simple technique that we know we have to teach the positive psychology folks that and we need to change a culture. Yeah. I think there's so much that could be done if the two disciplines really started to work together because 
I I love what positive psychology kind of stands for, right? It's really about how do we, we know what people like, what they love, what makes them happy. I think behavioral scientists will help everyone get to that point. And I think that's where if they work together, we could really create something really beautiful in this world. Absolutely right. And you know, one thing that makes us happy, as you've noted when you wrote me some questions, is feeling achievement, feeling mm-hmm. I've accomplished something. You know, it's funny in, in the researchers I've, I've studied self-motivation. What mm-hmm. influence influences us to be self-motivated, to be self-directed, to do it because we want to, not because someone is telling us. And the research says, one of the concepts, there's three C words that I teach. And this comes from research by Ed DC and Richard Ryan. It's been published all over the place. The first is competence. When we believe we are competent at doing worthwhile work, we're more likely to be self-motivated. We're more yeah. likely to be driven to keep doing that work for which we feel competent. Now, how do you help people feel competent? We know, don't we? Recognize them, supportive feedback, thank them, gratitude. Again, bringing those two fields together. Absolutely. Yeah, super interesting. Um, And I think this is a good segue into another question that I wanted to talk about, referring back to your paper. Um, So you talk about success seekers, you talk about overstrivers, failure avoiders, and failure acceptors. So these four kinds of people, right? Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on those four typologies and how they kind of relate to subjective well-being, life satisfaction, and what the kind of behaviors are that those typologies are really exhibiting? Like, what is it that, you know, what makes them stand apart? Sure. And and you say there are four kinds of mindsets or four kinds of attitude, right? If If my mindset is I'm working to gain something, I'm working for a positive consequence. I mean, that's that's behavioral science, man. When we we yeah. are happier when we're working to achieve. I'm working to get something in incentives, you know, compared to negative reinforcement. I'm working to avoid or to escape a negative consequence. We behavioral scientists, we know that we don't feel that good then. You know, it's we feel right. controlled. I think that's the way to say it. I feel controlled. I'm not likely to be self-motivated. So there is a basic distinction between success seeking or failure avoiding. You know, I ask my students, I teach 600 students in introductory psychology. First day I say, how many are here to avoid failure? And I'm telling you, almost every hand goes up. And I say, <laughs> I say, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're here because it means you're motivated because you're motivated for a consequence, but you're not happy campers. What did you tell your friends? I got to go to class. It's a requirement or I get to go to class. It's an opportunity. How do right. you see it? Again, I'm back to mindset. What is your mindset? And if we get turn that mindset to I'm working to achieve I'm working to learn. I'm working to gain a positive consequence. We got we got more happy people, man. We got happier campers. So there's a direct connection between consequence control with positive and happiness or well-being. It's so funny because when you talk about 
for me, when I reflect on my life in my undergrad years, there's so many times where I was like those students who are, who are like, oh, yeah, I got to go to class. You know, it's, it's a required yeah. class that I have to do almost all the time, but it is, this is kind of going into a different segment a little bit, but there's been so many times where I go into that class those first few weeks. I'm like, Oh yeah, I got to go. I got to go. But once you dive into sometimes the content or maybe the teacher is just so inspirational, right? They're delivering that gratitude. They're delivering those kind of socially mediated consequences that makes you feel inspired. And it makes you feel like you want to keep going essentially. And, and, and Adrian, you're feeling competent. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I'm understanding this stuff. I'm taking notes and I get it. All of a sudden you're competent. And here's another another word for self-motivation. We said competence. Here's another word, choice. When we believe we choose to do something, the, it's a perception. It's a perception. Right. You know, we might say we don't, we don't have any choice or control, but it's your perception of choice. And again, back to that mindset. I'm going to class because it's an opportunity to learn, not because I have to, but because I get to. See, the just changing that language increases the perception of choice. Right. I chose to do this. I didn't have to. I have chosen to come to class. I have chosen to do what I'm doing. I have chosen to be a success seeker. I have chosen to work to gain a positive consequence not to avoid an aversive consequence. So those success seekers that I think everyone kind of should strive to be, right? They, when it comes to choice, they feel that they have the option to choose what they're doing. They feel competent in whatever it is that they are doing and whatever it is that they are seeking. You mentioned that there's three. What is the third? Well, by the way, add to your point, and they feel grateful. They feel right. grateful that they can do this. Now, back to positive psychology, we're grateful. Well, yeah, the, the other possibility is <laughs> we're we're doing nothing. I'm not working to gain. I'm not working to avoid. I've just I've just accepted. So I'm a failure acceptor. Mm. I'm just accepting. Or the other word you use we use is I'm an overstrider. And I suggest that many of us are there. That is, we're we're working to gain. But we also feel fear failure. So let's face it, failure is in the back of our heads also. So in a sense, the, the label they, they've given that is overstriver. But I still think even if the fear of failure is in the back of our heads, if you push that aside and focus on achievement, the success seeker can take over and make us feel better about the situation. It's so funny because I think everyone in a sense is a success seeker by nature in the sense that you're, I mean, behaviorally speaking, you're trying to, of course, you want to go for some positive reinforcing consequence, right? Sure. I think that whole concept of failure and stuff really gets thrown in with our like verbal communities, right? Do you have your peers when you're in college who are all doing so well and you know whenever someone may be behind in their studies or in their career or life there's almost like some sort of like like weird like you can tell like oh yeah we're all doing great in the friend group but this one guy yeah he's not doing good and whenever we kind of talk about it you know it's like ah uh, i think that kind of those verbal interactions 
is what kind of promotes that failure feeling, right? It, it generalizes to us, yeah. Especially if you care about the other person, you know? Yeah. Their their failure is is, in, is influencing you. By the way, I know we don't like to talk much about personality, but a very important personality construct, it's a trait, is conscientiousness. Conscientiousness. And we what do I mean? I mean, some people are disciplined. Some people, some people are organized compared uh-huh. to some who are not organized. So there are some dispositional differences between people that make it easier to be a success seeker. For example, an achiever, a conscientious person, as you are, you're conscientious. So you are working to gain. But in the back of your head is, of course, fear of failure. It is for me, too. When I get get in my automobile to drive, I do everything I know to be safe. But in the back of my head, I could have a crash. Uh-huh. I could have a crash. And we hear about this every day. And now, of course, now we're hearing about mass shooting. That used to be something rare. Now it's something coming in our environment all the time. What does that do to our mindset? It says there could be a big failure here. You know, do I feel safe? Do I feel safe in my environment? And so anyway, that that brings in a concept of fear of failure, fear of disaster, fear of disaster that brings down our our positivity. Yeah. That's crazy to to think about and talk about, but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, so I guess, so what, what could I do? Say I'm someone who is just not a success seeker. Maybe I'm a, I'm a failure avoider, right? What can I do to change that mindset, behaviorally speaking? <laughs> well, the first thing you have to do is experience some success, right? Uh-huh. experience the positive consequence of being incompetent, you know? And so how do we do that? Now we talk about setting goals. Now we talk about setting some specific goal for the day that you can do. It's not, I'm not talking about a stretch goal. I'm talking about something specific that you can accomplish. And when you accomplish it, you can sit back and say, yeah, whether it's cooking a meal you know, whether it's mowing the grass, whether it's writing a comment, whether it's having a conversation with someone to influence that person in a positive way, whatever it is, to define it as an accomplishment. You know, right. I've I've done this and, and 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 I did pretty good. And so that's a way of, of reinforcing, I should say, supporting our mindset of successful. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna change the world, but one step at a time. I've done it. I feel competent at this particular task. Right. Yeah, and then you know I think that whole point of take it one step at a time really hits home because for a lot of people, it's they feel so eager to get to the finish line of whatever it is that they might be working on, or maybe they do feel competent in whatever it is that they're working at. And they know because of that competence, they could be so much further along. Right. And so I think that's, that, that sometimes brings uh, some issues uh, with oneself as well. That's the aspirations we have, isn't it? That's the, we have, by the way, in humanistic psychology, they talk about the ideal self. What would you like to be? What is your ideal situation? And then we have, the real self 
What do you think you really are? How competent are you? And there's a big gap between your aspirations, the ideal and the real. We have an issue of not feeling competent. And so the challenge, and of course, now I'm talking about humanistic therapy, which behaviors don't talk much about. Although I should say, I believe after all my, I've been, I've been at the university here now 53 years and I have, I'm convinced the academic label we should be using is humanistic behaviorism. And by the way, have you heard that term before? Humanistic uh, behaviorism. Half thanks to you and your your papers. <laughs> okay, because because in the seventies it was a it was used, but it kind of dropped away. As you know, in in college, we have separate silos. We got the humanists over here, the behaviorist over here the cognitives over here, the mm -hmm. positive psychology over here. We put people in separate silos and we don't talk about how we could integrate, bring them together to make for a bigger, better silo. And again, yeah. I, I'm convinced that you know, one term we ought to really connect to is humanistic behaviorism. For example, that means changing behavior from a perspective of empathy, right? Mm -hmm. It means means. Here's a here's a quick example. When I drive to, to school, to the university, there's an elementary school. I pass, and they have a big sign, and they put the name of a student, and that's it, student of the month, elementary school student of the month. Now they think they're doing the right thing. They're thinking they're using a positive consequence to reward one student <laughs> out of 600 right. so with empathy with some humanism we might think what is really going on is it possible that that student it's beat up well that student feels down on that because they don't want that kind of attention because there's they're a winner and every losers my point is do we think about the consequences of our contingencies Right. Using a reinforcement contingency. Yeah. Some of those socially mediated reinforcement strategies of praise, right? That doesn't work on everybody. There are some people who very much find that very aversive. They want to do something to avoid that. So if that means, you know, if they got a hundred on a test, but they're going to have to stand up in front of the class and, you know, everyone's going to clap for them, they're going to make sure that they don't get a hundred. <laughs> well, you know? I that's why we, when we teach how to give supportive feedback, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. It's not group. It's one-on-one. -on -one. And right. before you give group recognition, you have to ask permission. How is it okay if I acknowledge you in front of the whole class? But what we are talking about, aren't we? Talk about humanism. We're talking about considering the perception, even the cognitions, the covert behavior of the other person before we administer a positive reinforcement contingency. Humanistic behaviorism. Right. Yeah, I see it. You talked about earlier uh, those like different silos. And the funny thing is, right, if, if someone does something, everyone has an explanation for why they did it right they everyone has their own underlying mm -hmm. based on whatever their silo is so to speak and and i read this essentially uh in this book called behavior by 
I forget the name of the guy. He is just, he's a professor at Stanford. Um, and so he's basically saying behaviorists will basically justify why someone does something because of this, because of their interactions with the environment and the consequences, what are the contingencies? Meanwhile, the neuroscientists or the neuropsychologist talks about the receptors, that being the reason why someone is doing something. And then the cognitive psychologists will talk about maybe like, you know, something else going on in the mind that's creating it. But it's so funny because everyone has their own thought of why someone's doing it. And I think that really contributes the, the, the kind of separation between those different groups, right? It's like, no, I I've studied this and this is why I'm right. And it kind of creates this like narrow minded perspective. You're so right, my friend. That's exactly. And that's an issue. But now let's, let's backtrack and let's say of those different perspectives, which one can we use to make this person feel better? I mean, yeah, we can, we can explain things with neurology and we can explain things with cognition, but the thing that we can do is act people into thinking better or, again, influence behavior in positive ways. And then we assume that that's going to influence their thinking and, in fact, their neurology. So, again, the way to turn it around and say, okay, there are lots of ways to explain what people do. But the issue that we have to worry about is what can we do? to help this person. Right. And again, even even we can't do, we're not clinicians, clinical psychology, they can they can attack cognition, but as 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 people in a world we can we can address behavior. If you see something positive or better yet, look for something positive and give a positive consequence. Mm-hmm. Say something that a simple thing that we can all do, which would influence our culture. And it, by the way, just doing that that doesn't mean the other approaches are wrong. It's just a different way of looking at the situation. But it's looking at the situation in terms of what we can do about it. The average person can clearly look for something positive and say something positive. Yeah, everyone's everyone's capable at the end of the day. And it really, again, it comes down to your environment, the the setting that you're in, right? And I think that's why, like, like if you think about right, school system, different schools, right? They have different cultures around them. Even different classrooms have different cultures, depending on who the teacher yeah. is. And I think this is something that I wanted to mention a little bit earlier, but we were talking about giving praise and recognition and showing that competence in a student. I wonder, I don't know if there's any research on this, but if you think about those massive lecture halls of students for five, four or 500 students there who in those cases, they probably feel like they're just another number of a class of a gen ed that they have to fill, right? You're probably getting competence from those grades and whatnot. If you're studying, you're getting that, you know, oh, I got a 95, that social, that should be reinforcing to continue studying, continue showing up and whatnot, right? But when it comes to really feeling invested and bought into the work, I think the smaller classrooms do so much better because the professor can have that that one-on-one time and really give that social recognition, that social praise and whatnot. In fact, what you just said, 
gets to a big, big issue here at this university. I teach 500 students in a class. And mm-hmm. what they decided to do is we might as well go virtual. If you're going to have a large class with one person in the front lecturing, you might as well make it virtual. Because with a virtual presentation, the student can replay it, can stop it, can and so forth. So if it's all about acquiring knowledge and you have to have for efficiency, a large number of students, you might as well go virtual. And by the way, this is contrary to my my mindset and what because I've been I believe I can try up in front of that classroom to get people engaged. And and some do, but the bottom line is, and our by the way, we've studied this. We've studied virtual, the we've studied grades, grades in a virtual class, large class versus a lecture class. And they get the grades are just as good, if not better, in the virtual class. Because students can see it again. They can play it over. Right. You're absolutely right. It's the smaller class. And it's not a lecture anymore. Now it's a discussion. Now we get people involved in questioning and interacting. And so now they are becoming part of the education process. Yeah. I mean, when you're in that small classroom and it is the discussion, you get that corrective feedback almost instantaneously. And it's and it's for the whole group too. You know, if someone says something wrong, there's no negative socially mediated consequence of, oh no, you're wrong. Like, no, of course not. It is fully for the purposes of teaching and making sure that, okay, this is what we're here to do. And yeah, if we're gonna be going to, you know, pushing more virtual and online. Uh, I see that becoming a lot more difficult to happen naturally. Yes. And by the way, what you just said is through those interactions, you're personalizing the class for the students who are there. Yeah. How how similar is that? That's humanism. That's humanism. Making it personal, connecting to the individuals with regard to their purpose, their questions. Of course, like you said, too, that it takes a small class. I mean, you get to more than 60 students, it's tough to do that. Yeah, totally. Totally. And you think about, we were talking about higher education right now, but I mean, if you think about how our education system is here in the U.S., by the time you're in high school, I mean, your classes sizes are all between 20 to 30 people, you know, where they the teachers are really, really invested in their students and spend a lot more time with them. Um, it's just food for thought in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to kind of segue into another uh, topic. So I'm pretty interested in organizational behavior and organizational culture and whatnot. And I want to ask if, do you think that we can apply this behavioral science to enhance subjective well-being and human welfare for those people in businesses and organizations and that kind of corporate culture and climate. Absolutely. And you're talking about leadership. Mm -hmm. By the way, I've made a distinction between leadership and management. We manage behavior and we lead people. And when I say leadership, I mean, we're applying what we know Get back to those three C's. I want to increase self-motivation. I want my workers to be self-motivated, to be self-accountable. How do I do that in an organization? 
Well, I promote first C word, competence. Through supportive feedback, I help them feel competent at their job. The next C word was choice. <clears throat> I, I open up for conversations. I, I give them choice. Here's the word they use in industry, participative management. You've heard that term, right? I want them to participate. It's not going to be top-down rules and top-down regulations. I want their input. And then the third C word is community. A sense of interdependency. That the fact that we are in this together, it's not one person. It's it's not independent, it's interdependent. Now, that said, how do we make that happen? Leadership. Leaders do that. And by the way, here's another point. Everybody can be a leader. See, managers get their position assigned to them. You're a supervisor, you're a manager, and a manager could be a leader doing these things I've just suggested. But also the average worker can inspire others for those three C words, competence, choice, and community. Another word that relates to what we're talking about, and it's really a hot term these days in, 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 the, in the industry is, have you heard this term, psychological safety? Have you heard, heard of that term? Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's, it's old wine in a new bottle. All <laughs> of a sudden, this guy, Tim Clark, writes a book, 2020, and he promotes it all over the place, claiming you need psychological safety. Of course, yes, we do. And we know we've done this. We just didn't label it that way. But how does it connect to what you just had? Asked. Psychological safety is having the kind of culture where people feel, people feel comfortable challenging the status quo, for example. It, or they feel included. Right. That, that sense of community, huh? They feel included. And and also they feel like they're learning on the job. Yeah. I, yes. As I do my job, I'm learning. And guess what? Here's one more. I'm contributing. Yeah. I feel that I now how, how can a person in an in an organization have that sense of psychological safety? Simple leadership, right? It takes leadership following certain principles to enable people to feel that they're included, that they're contributing, that they're learning on the job, and that they can challenge. They can challenge the status quo. Yeah. I, they think they can. I, I love the challenge thing. Um, and it it's, you know, it's applied behavior all, all in there, right? When you think oh, yeah. of, feeling the need to be challenged, right? Say you're in a room with 10 of the workers with their one manager and the manager says, all right, I want some ideas for what we can do to maybe make this thing go faster or whatever, right? Whatever situation they, they're trying to tackle. And say, you know, one person raises their hand and the manager says, oh, well, that won't work because of this. All right, next, right? That's immediate negative reinforcement for that and it very much generalizes to everyone else instead right what you can do is say okay guys we're trying to tackle this problem how do we come about it and just let it be a shoot free for all 
even if the manager knows it won't work so that they feel like they can contribute. Even if it won't work, they're at least being heard. They're being listened to. You're not punishing that type of behavior that's coming up with these different ideas and whatnot. That is so, that is so right. And guess what? That is not efficient. Yeah. It takes time. It'll be effective if you do it. And so the, and again, you just address this two different, the typical way for the, for the manager to do is say, guys, we got a problem. And here's how we're going to solve it. I've thought about it all night to come up with a solution and start to assign different workers to handle the problem. Now that will be quick, but that does not promote psychological safety. That does not promote self-motivation. You, as we do it the way you just said it, Adrian, we say, we got a problem, folks. How do we fix it? Now let them. Now you might come up with the same solution as the as a manager first came up with, but they participated. That is participative management. Well, I would actually call it participative leadership. Well, it's the same thing, right? As those classrooms, of those discussions, it's the same exact thing. Yes. It's not, you're just sitting back, relaxing, and you know, being fed this information of, all right, this is what you got to study, or this is your assignment that you have to do. No, you're fully collaborating and investing and making that work uniquely part of your own, right? You're, you're putting your identity and you're putting your work into it. And there's a lot of, I mean, positive reinforcement really going, going on consistently through that. And you know, it's the instructor's challenge is to develop the questions, to set the stage, to fix the culture to happen. So it does do what you've just said. So the students are included. So we have, in fact, it's interesting you bring this up because one of my students this summer, we are studying psychological safety in the classroom. And we're right now coming up with developing a questionnaire to ask students the extent to which they feel psychologically safe in various classes, from large class to small class. Does the does the nature of the class, does the content of the course make a difference in psychological safety in the classroom? I mean, a lot of questions we can come up with, but our challenge is to get what you've just suggested, a classroom where people really feel involved. Again, they have choice, they feel competent, and there's a sense of community, a sense of belongingness. So I just, either today or yesterday, watched a video of basically a Harvard Business School MBA case study where there's the professor who pitched the problem of what this basically uh, like safety mine company or this mining company had where they had an incident where a person died and, you know, kind of gave some background information and then gave it to the class. All right, how are we going to tackle it? What would you do? And you watch the video and everyone's shooting ideas off of each other. And it's very, very interactive. And you have, you can see the professor so, so heavily invested, arms flailing, spewing, okay, now what? Or what about this? What about that? And really, really fostering that learning environment, constantly giving feedback to each other, the peers, with the professor and getting at that idea. And you look at I mean, it's Harvard Business School, their MBA program, one of the most selective programs, but that's what they're doing. They're fostering that environment of we're going to give a lot of corrective feedback. We're going to be giving a lot of reinforcement 
and obviously, you know, making sure that they feel that competence that they, you know, even if I, what I'm saying might not be the best. Yeah. That's something to give. That's some information to give. That is psychological safety. You've just defined what they're talking about these days and psychological safety. And as you know, that's not new, right? In fact, you've used, used different terminology, behavioral science terminology to talk about the same thing, but that's really what it is. That brings up an interesting point. Sometimes we have to adjust our language so different people from a different silo understand what we're talking about. Yeah. You no, know? because our language, our way of teaching and speaking is very much influenced by our discipline. Yeah. Our silo. Totally. And I mean, when you think of, I think behaviorism and applied behavioral science has so much to offer. But it's just not a household known thing, uh, you know, not like mainstream pop psychology, we call it, right? Um, but there's so much overlap and interaction. And I think if we were to really work with each other, with, there would be so much good that can be brought about. Oh, man, I love to hear you say that because this, this has been my frustration for 50 plus years. because. At the university, what do we do? We write our articles and we publish them in our journals, journals that only other professors or other students, if we assign it to read, so that the world never really understands or gets what we know about making the world a better place. So okay. our challenge really is, as you just said, dissemination. How do we get the world to know what we know to really apply the principles that we've studied, we know because we don't do it, we have pop psychology. We have the, the consultants out there who don't know the full story and they're only giving half of the information or even not even that. And so that's our challenge as I see it. And, and it, it's frustrated me at the university here. I've written many magazine articles. These, this podcast, for example. These conversations, the world needs to hear and learn from. Without folks like you spreading the word, us researchers, we stay in our ivory tower and we publish in our own little select journals that the world doesn't read, only other professors and students read, and we're losing opportunities to make a difference, to make the world a better place. And as you said so well, we know we know how to make the world a better place. If here, let me say this again. If you see something, say something, but turn that around to look for good things in people and compliment them and show gratitude for what they do. A simple technique like that. Yeah, I think that would really work too. Um, and those businesses and culture or those organizational settings, right? To establish that kind of culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I have a few friends who work for you know different companies, but this one person I know, they essentially have like these like $10, $15 like thank you cards that they can give out for someone helping them. And my friend, she tried to give this one guy a card and he actually was full. He was maxed out on the amount of cards that he could get. Um, but I wonder, you know, how much of that is one of those things where, you know, how much is that 
really generalizing to other things. I would probably argue a lot, right? You know, you do that, you probably feel motivated to go do something else for another person as well. You, you know, what's amazing, we do exactly what you just said. We have studied, indeed, the effect of giving a thank you card to a professor. And what does that do to the attitude, the mood state of the student? Example, quick experiment. Two students, they're each given a thank you card. No, I'm, I'm sorry. Three students, two are given a thank you card to give to the professor. A third student, they just in the class. But we give a, a mood survey to each of those three individuals. Then the two students who were given a thank you card, one of them, of course, is one of our research students. So, But the other is just an, an, a randomly selected student in the classroom. They give the professor a thank you card. It says, and they say, they say thank you for teaching me today. And of course, they, they're also recording the reaction of the professor on a part of the card that they keep. So they the card to give the professor, it, says, it has a, our university logo on it. I mean, it's a customized card. And then get, guess what? They go back and they fill out that mood survey again. And so now we have the mood before giving the thank you card and the mood after giving the thank you card. And as you, as you can expect, and we've shown is after you've given your thank you card, even that random student who was not a researcher from our group, their mood increased after giving the thank you card. Now, some of them felt a little, little, little stress, man. I don't, I've never done this. I've never given a thank you card to a professor. And they say, we're a little, little bummed up with after they did it. And the professor, every time the professor or the instructor is just wowed by it, you know? And now, and of course, the, the then that third person who didn't do it, their mood does not change a little bit because the class is over and a little bit rise. But the point is, so we are studying the effects of mood as a function of giving a thank you card. So yeah, we are we are we are studying that. And again, as you as you implied, it does improve the mood state of the giver as well as the receiver of the thank you. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about this, but I can already hear this behavior is saying, well, we don't really care about mood. Why should we care about mood? We care about behavior. Well, because it's, you know, the behavior of doing something good. And again, you know, Skinner talked about it. We all feel it. You know, mood is a thing. Those feelings, it's a byproduct of our behavior, you know? Absolutely. And that's indeed why we use positive consequences more than negative consequences what will they tell you why do you use positive consequences because i feel better people feel better afterwards you know again success seeker so of course we're concerned about feelings and cognitions as a function of the consequence yeah yeah and so we're just demonstrating and sure enough of course that connects to positive psychology a little bit of gratitude can go a long way yeah another thing about kind of the topic of gratitude and you know giving out these thank you cards and whatnot is on the flip side um you know if you get too many gift cards or those thank you cards you know kind of becomes 
meaningless in a sense if it becomes satiated right because then it's like oh well you know maybe it's just because right so i think there's like a fine line a fine balance between you know how often it can be given out right that's something that i think would be really interesting to kind of learn more about yeah well yeah i agree with you but let's face it <laughs> does anybody get too much <laughs> attitude has anybody been been recognized too much for the good things they do i mean yeah i mean it's, i would not <laughs> no i mean who who does i i ask my 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 students this you know because yeah satiation is a possibility but who gets too much who gets too many aids too much recognition too much supportive feedback yeah can you, be, can you get too much can you be satiated on supportive feedback i don't know I mean, I, I I've never gotten more than more than than I've not gotten too much, man. You know. Yeah. Well, I can give you some. Uh, you know, thanks for really taking time to to come and speak with me. I think it's so fascinating. Again, I, when I reflect, you know, I really liked positive psychology and I really liked OBM, and I thought OBM and just behavioral science is it gets at the how, the why we do right and if we understand the why we can influence the things that that you know are those byproducts of the, the why we do which is those feelings and emotions and that's what i think probably life is about it makes it worth living if you can feel and feel happy and joyous and whatnot so and, if we can... and you know it's not complicated is it it's not difficult no. We all we can all pay more attention to things we appreciate. We can all give more gratitude. We can all wave and thank that driver for stopping at the crosswalk. I mean, we can all do some basic things to be a happier world, man. We we can increase subjective well-being in everybody with the simple basic principles of positive consequences. Yeah. And I think it's if you're in charge of groups, right? So if you're in charge, if you have a business, it's so easy to to bring that in. I feel like if you already have the means to set up, if you have a manager or a leader who just is capable of, you know, hearing what we were talking about and then just applying it, I mean, the results will pretty much speak for themselves, I would say. Absolutely. And it might take a little more time but the payoff is well worth it. And and again, thank you for, for spreading this. I mean, again, in our little ivory tower, it makes no difference unless we have agents like yourself to kind of spread the word through through talking to others through, through podcasts like this. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you again for the time. Uh, it's been really, really interesting to talk to you about all this really. Thank you, Adrian. I, I appreciate your time and, and thank you for reading this stuff carefully. I mean, listen, you're our leg, you're the legacy, man. You're the future. You know, we plant the seeds, but now you cultivate them and spread them around and perhaps add more seeds yourself. So I'm grateful for you, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Student Perspective Series from Operate Innovations. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, 
please feel free to reach out to us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.